very disappointing to see the continual back and forth every four years. A look back at the long fight over the Tongass roadless rule. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Friday, December 24th. Good evening, I'm Lori Townsend. Also tonight, a shortage of Alaska crab creates challenges for local restaurants. So this is the first time that we're having to go buy Russian crab or Norwegian crab, basically just to stay in business. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Everyone knows eating fruits and veggies promotes a long and healthy life. It's important to make every bite count. Alaskans are lucky to have greens and berries from the land, as well as fresh, frozen, and canned. When it comes to living a long and healthy life, remember, every bite counts. This message sponsored by USDA SNAP-Ed. Public media is about you, the community we serve. Thank you for tuning in. A new report from the State Labor Department shows Alaska had about 7,200 more jobs last month than in November 2020, with the leisure and hospitality sector seeing the biggest jump. But job numbers overall lagged pre-pandemic figures from November 2019, with few sectors showing higher job figures last month than in November 2019. The leisure and hospitality industry had about 28,100 jobs last month. That's about 3,200 more than in November 2020, but 3,700 fewer than in November 2019. There were about 6,700 oil and gas jobs last month, 600 more than a year earlier, but about 3,100 fewer than in November 2019. It's been a whipsaw year for management of the nearly 17 million acre Tongass National Forest as the Biden administration works to undo policies of its predecessors. Coast Alaska's Jacob Bresnik has this roundup of 2021 and the latest on the fate of the 20 year fight over the roadless rule in southeast Alaska. Last year, the Trump administration won plaudits from Alaska's elected leaders, exempting southeast Alaska's national forest from the roadless rule which restricts road building and development. In real terms, it opened up about 168,000 acres of old-growth forest to potential logging. But while championed by Alaska's congressional delegation and Governor Mike Dunleavy, the roadless rule rollback was criticized by tribes, conservationists, and industries such as fishing and tourism, which argued that more clear-cuts would be short-sighted. Here's Austin Williams, an Anchorage-based attorney with Trout Unlimited. There's absolutely no reason for us to continue to clear-cut log old-growth forest. It's a, a critically important resource and, and something that we need to be taking much better care of. That was shortly after word came from the Biden administration that the exemption would be overturned, restoring protections to about half the largest national forest in the country. Southeast Conference's Robert Venables says it was another U-turn from a political transition in Washington, D.C. It's it's very disappointing to see the continual back and forth every four years. It wasn't until November that President Biden's Agriculture Secretary, Tom Vilsack, who oversees the Forest Service, released more details of its plans. I don't know how many times the uh, Vilsack can announce the same thing and have it sound like news. That was Juno attorney Jim Clark, who helped lead a lawsuit, later joined by the Dunleavy administration to preserve the roadless rules exemption. It was dismissed by a federal court. But the upshot of the November announcement was the opening of a two-month comment window for the public to weigh in on the future of the Tongass. 
In a filing published in the Federal Register, the Forest Service noted that Southeast timber industry is a fraction of what it once was. Tongass National Forest-related logging and sawmilling fell from just shy of 200 jobs in the early 2000s to around 60 workers in 2018. This comes as the commercial fishing industry holds steady and the cruising and independent visitor sectors expect significant growth despite hiccups caused by the pandemic. Additionally, Southeast residents who rely on the federal lands to hunt and fish for their food had argued for more protections. Don Hernandez chairs the Regional Advisory Council on Federal Subsistence. He lives on Prince of Wales Island and spent hours taking testimony from subsistence hunters, fishermen, and gatherers across the region. It had just become pretty obvious over a long period of time that the areas of the Tongass that were most significantly impacted by past logging were all suffering uh, harms to subsistence uses. So far, the Biden administration's actions are a return to the drawn-out rulemaking process that could be undone by a future president. More permanent protections for the Tongass would likely require an act of Congress. The Forest Service's comment period over its proposal to return roadless protections to the Tongass remains open now until January 24th. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. In late 2020, two people who were jailed at the Lemon Creek Correctional Center in Juneau complained about the way it was responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. The state ombudsman's office investigated. KTOO's Rasha McChesney has this story about its final report. In late September of 2020, a woman housed at Juneau's Correctional Center complained to the state that she wasn't getting appropriate medical treatment. She described living in a tent with no running water or indoor plumbing along with other women. She said it was unhygienic and put other inmates at risk of infection and illness. A month later, a man complained that Juno's correctional facility put him at risk of contracting COVID-19. He described an extra long quarantine period of 27 days because new people kept being added to his group and they all got exposed. He said he didn't get adequate medical attention at the time either. These complaints are detailed in a new report from the state ombudsman's office. That's the neutral office that investigates complaints against state agencies. And the state's ombudsman, Kate Burkhart, says there are a few important things to know about the investigation. One is that this is a crowded congregate living facility. Lemon Creek is not designed for a pandemic. It is not even designed to hold inmates in separate cells. It's much more barrack style. And there's more people there than there is space. And at that point in 2020, a lot of things were different than they are now. Vaccines weren't yet available. Case counts were still relatively low because the state hadn't encountered some of the highly contagious variants that came along in 2021. So Burkhart says they limited their investigation to what the Department of Corrections knew about the virus and containing it at the time. She also noted that when state investigators were digging into the COVID-19 strategies at Lemon Creek, the facility hadn't had an outbreak. That has since changed. In 2021, dozens of inmates tested positive for the virus. The allegations detailed violations of the state corrections department's own plan for responding to the pandemic. For example, the man who complained said he didn't get his temperature checked for most of the time that he was in quarantine, including a full week when he didn't get one. That's supposed to happen daily. What we determined was that the facility did have trouble consistently conducting the temperature and symptom screenings due in large part to lack of staffing because their medical staff, which is 
pretty skeletal to begin with, um, was also dealing with uh, having to stay out because of COVID exposure. There were times when Juno's correctional facility was operating with less than half of its nursing staff, according to the report. Some of the problems stem from things that aren't easily addressed, like overcrowding. The Lemon Creek superintendent is quoted in the report saying that it's hard to socially distance when you're living in a shoebox. But overall, Burkhart says the state corrections department was pretty responsive throughout the investigation and has updated its COVID-19 responses several times during the pandemic. For instance, after the woman complained about living in a tent with no running water, corrections officials put a sink close by and they say women living there can access it at any time. And the state started recruiting for more medical staff. It also contracted with two companies to help with COVID-19 testing. The Ombudsman's office did make one recommendation for another thing Lemon Creek Correctional could do. So we recommended that the correctional officers be trained to do a basic screening, kind of like what happens when you like try to go to your gym or um, other places in the community where they check your temperature and ask, uh, do you have any symptoms? But it's not clear if corrections officials will make that change, and the Ombudsman can't force them to. Hundreds of other inmates have tested positive for the virus across the state, At least six of them have died. But this report only covers Juno's jail. Statewide, there could be other issues with other correctional facilities. It's hard to know because the Ombudsman's office keeps investigations confidential until they're finished. Burkhart says her office was anticipating a wave of complaints about how state departments were handling COVID-19, and that didn't happen. The lack of complaints doesn't mean there's a lack of problems. You can read the full report about Lemon Creek Correctional Facility at ktoo.org. And if you're having problems or have a complaint with a state agency or service, go to www.ombud.alaska.gov or call 907-465-4970. In Juneau, I'm Rasha McChesney. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, a long-running holiday tradition in Skagway. He's going to do a little Christmas magic for the kids, lead us in one to two Christmas songs, and then uh, Mrs. Claus will also read a story. That's ahead. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Opioids are sometimes prescribed for pain. Common opioids include hydrocodone, oxycodone, morphine, fentanyl, and codeine. Never share your opioids with family or friends. It may cause addiction, trouble with the law, overdose, and death. Always securely store opioids away from children and others, and be sure to get rid of opioids as soon as you're done using them. Email projecthope at alaska.gov to learn how to safely dispose of opioids. This message sponsored by the State of Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. A coalition of Peninsula nonprofits purchased a 22-bed building in Nikiski to turn it into a homeless shelter and hope to get it up and running before the end of the month. Last week, they brought that plan to the community during a town hall at the Nikiski Recreation Center. While some were supportive, many of the residents who attended said they worry about safety. And they said they wished they had learned about the plan sooner. KDLL's Sabine Pook says more. Leslie Rohr is executive director of Love Inc., the nonprofit taking point on the shelter. She asked participants to think about the good the facility could do for the community. So I would hope that each and every one of you would at least give an opportunity to come and see what it is that um, we plan to do, what we want to do, and what we want to accomplish. And we want to include the community of Nikiski. The shelter is just north of the Recreation Center on the Kenai Spur Highway. 
Rohr says it will be emergency housing for a slice of the nearly 900 houseless people on the peninsula Loving serviced in 2019. The 5,800-square-foot building was previously a dormitory, so it already comes with many of the amenities needed to house two dozen clients, from 14 bedrooms to a kitchen and dining space. Clients will come in for 30 days at a time, Rohr says, with the possibility of extending for another 30. Volunteers and staff will help them find work and support, and the Kenai Peninsula Food Bank will supply the majority of food for the shelter. But many at the town hall, like Wenda Kennedy, said they were upset they weren't consulted first before the nonprofits bought the space. Kennedy runs Nikiski Village Mobile Home Park, an affordable housing complex a mile up the road from the shelter site. No one was notified in the community so that we weren't part of the planning situation. Rohr said that's because the nonprofits had to act fast. They heard about the space in September and, after quickly securing grant funding, bought the building in November. They didn't have to worry about changing the zoning of the property since the land belongs to the borough, not one of the cities. Because of undercover um, that, we, that we came about this, um, things moved very quickly, but until we knew that we had the building, we couldn't say this is what we're going to be doing or this is what we want to do. The Kiski resident Len Neeson says she worries about the long commute troopers would have to take to get onto the property. How many staff will you have on hand? How are they qualified to prevent or handle emergencies? Aurora said there will be staff on hand at all hours, including two every night and up to four during the day, who are all trained in trauma-informed care. Incoming clients, she says, will go through a screening process before they're allowed to stay at the shelter. People with histories of violent crimes or crimes against children will not be admitted. And drugs and alcohol are not allowed in the shelter. Visitors are also not allowed. Shelter organizers say they know Nikiski isn't the ideal spot for a shelter. It's just under 20 minutes to get to downtown Kenai and 30 minutes to Soldatna. But they say they struck out on several other sites closer to the cities. Another plan to rotate homeless families through churches fell through because it wasn't up to fire code. Plus, Rohr says over 40% of the homeless population Lovink served in the last 12 months lives in North Kenai and Nikiski. Kennedy, who runs the mobile home park and used to run a shelter in California, says she's scared the shelter will impact her business. Specifically, she said she's worried about people using drugs or stealing. We still have problems here in the community, and we don't want to import more problems into our community. Kennedy and many others at the meeting said they worried about the shelter becoming a second Merit Inn. Loving partnered with the Merit Inn in Kenai for years to house homeless families. The nonprofit closed the facility in 2013, citing a loss of funding. Rose said she knows there were issues with drugs at the facility, as well as an uptick in emergency calls. But she said there were also many clients whose lives were changed from that shelter for the better. Unless you volunteered or unless you participated financially with the shelter, um, you really don't know what went on there. And there were a lot of people. She said the facility was larger than the one coming in now, with over 100 beds. Allison Bushnell said that her two years in the shelter as a kid transformed her life. It was when we were living in the shelter, when I had a dividing moment in my life where I decided that I wanted to do and be better for the life that we were living. She said it was there she started getting better grades in school, paving the way for her to go to college for a degree in human services. Now she's a housing case manager for Love, Inc. Not everyone at the Dikiski Town Hall was dubious of the plan. Dikiski resident Robin Bogard thanked Roar for fielding dozens of questions at the meeting. You know, you've convinced me, I will say, and I was skeptical to begin with, that you've got a good, solid plan. 
April Hall is a pastor for North Star Methodist Church, less than a mile up the road from the shelter. She said she's worked with a lot of homeless people in the community, and she says she's excited, not worried about her new neighbors. And Leslie, I know you've got it covered. I know that if you need help, you will ask. And I just say, amen, it's about time. Rosa said the team hopes to open the shelter before year's end. She estimates monthly operations will average $15,000. In Nikiski, I'm Sabine Pooks. Crab shortages and inflation are hitting seafood restaurants across the country. And for the first time since the 1990s, the Bristol Bay Red King crab season is closed. As KTOO's Lindsay Brolini reports, it's forcing one Juno King crab restaurant to make some tough decisions. Tracy's King Crab Shack has served Alaskan King Crab below market price for years, but the restaurant isn't able to do that anymore. Owner Tracy Labarge says prices have gone up 100%. I mean, it's not a small, a small increase. It's double what it was in 2019. So that's been a tough one to take. She says that crab shortages and inflation are making the price of crab and all seafood go up. Those crab shortages are being caused by multiple factors. One of the biggest ones in Alaska is that there's just not as many crabs. This year, all major stocks of crab in Bristol Bay were low, not just king crab. Forrest Bowers manages commercial fisheries for the Department of Fish and Game. He says that the number of mature male and female crabs has been declining for years. Mature crabs are the ones that reproduce, and over the last 12 years, fewer and fewer crabs are reaching that age. You know, in general, the reasons why productivity could be low or that is that environmental conditions are unfavorable. It's not just the environment. Bowers says there's a lot of factors coming into play. But the end result of that is that this year, Fishing Game closed the Red King crab season in Bristol Bay. And that closure has a direct impact on LaBarge's restaurant. It's kind of what we prided ourselves in was always buying Alaskan king crab, Bristol Bay king crab. So this is kind of the first time um, that we're having to go, you know, buy Russian crab or Norwegian crab, um, basically just to stay in business. Um, because the crab season is closed. Next season, she'll still have other Alaskan crabs like Dungeness, Snow, or Tanner, but not kings. And there's still high demand for crab, especially overseas. Labarge says that there's usually a big rush for crab around Chinese New Year's. Combine that demand with increased inflation, and it's made the price of all species of crab go up. A lot. I mean, we're double in our pricing, which is a shock to people who have been longtime customers. Um, you know, but it is what it is. We're all just trying to survive. Normally, LaBarge already has all her crab purchased for the next tourism season. But with the high prices, she says it didn't make sense for her to do that. She's hoping the prices will go down after the holidays and she can buy her crab then. But she also doesn't want to wait too long and then not have enough crab either. LaBarge says this next tourism season will make or break her business. This year's season was better than 2020, but she still operated at a loss, and she can only do that for so long. The one thing we're good at is we're good at adjusting our menu. We're good at adjusting our labor. Um, this is 17 years now we've been doing this, so we're pretty good good at adjusting to the market, but this has been a not a fun one. <laughs> Labarge thinks sales next year will be better than this year, but that it's still just a guessing game at this point. In Anchorage, I'm Lindsay Brolini. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. 
the Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. The ongoing pandemic has extended often already longer wait times for goods shipped to Alaska. KUAC's Robin has more. You may have been hearing a lot about the supply chain, but what is it really and how does it affect Alaska? In a presentation to Fairbanks North Starboro Economic Development staff, Department of Labor economist Karina Weibold described the supply chain like this. Where does it start? Then who has it? Then who has it? Then who has it? And ultimately, how does it get to the consumer? Weibold says nearly everything we wear and use and a lot of what we eat has been disrupted by the pandemic, either by the inavailability of raw materials or manufacturing and transportation delays. We are in a really integrated economy worldwide where we're all participating together in this movement of goods and materials. She pointed to profit-driven changes in the last decade or two where manufacturers try to be as nimble as possible to respond to changes in the worldwide market. Being lean and mean and working on receiving a signal that something is needed or ready and then going to get it with your response as opposed to setting things up in a more prepared method. That means not paying to warehouse either raw materials nor an inventory of finished goods and making last-minute shipping arrangements. An approach, she says, that works, as long as everything is in place. Then once things start to be gummed up, then we don't have the ability to get the whole machinery moving. Weebold says the disruption has hit Alaska in different ways, but one of the most obvious is lumber. She used an example of an Alaska contractor in the home building business. A 2,000 square foot house costing about 7,000 in lumber. So let's just think about that. Normal size house, 7,000 in lumber pre-pandemic. We got to the summer and the same amount of wood was going to be costing $27,000. Some of that was disruptions in lumber production and some of it was transportation related. Lumber prices have driven increases in Alaska housing costs that will likely continue. These were the biggest global supply chain um, issues that we have seen outside of war. Weebold says the pandemic drove a perfect storm of short supply while we were increasing our demand. Alaskans were at home a great deal in the last two years. People are working from home. They're isolating. So we started spending on things that were making our kitchens more efficient, that were making our home offices more efficient, that were making our homes more comfortable, that were keeping our kids entertained. So there was a decrease in the supply of goods because of what was happening globally. At the same time, there was an increase in the demand for a lot of goods because of the way that we were spending our time and money. Entering the third year of the pandemic, the availability of vaccines is allowing raw material production and manufacturing output to begin catching up in some sectors, while shipping backlogs remain an issue. In Fairbanks, I'm Robin. There's a Christmas tradition in Skagway that's been happening every year since World War II. It's a show put on by a local charity that showcases music, elves, Santa, and Mrs. Claus, and a present for every kid that wants one. KHNS's Mike Swayze reports. On Christmas Eve in 1941, the Eagles Club in Skagway put on its first Christmas Eve pageant. It was a way for the town's kids to celebrate with Santa Claus and spread holiday cheer. 
The Eagles Club, an international fraternal order dedicated to charity, has kept the show going ever since, and this Christmas Eve will mark its 80th year. Chair of the club's Christmas committee, Kaylin Howard, says this year's show will start off with magician and musician Andrew Naden. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. He's going to do a little Christmas magic for the kids, lead us in one to two Christmas songs, and then uh, Mrs. Claus will also read a story to the kids. Um, so they, all the kids are invited to sit around the stage around her and listen to a story time. And then one of the biggest traditions that we've continued is, even though the music and the story will change every year, the one consistent is everybody then after story time sings Here Comes Santa Claus together as Santa arrives um, on stage. Santa will then hand out gifts that he, Mrs. Claus, and the elves hand-wrapped for each child in attendance. Howard says the show has changed a bit over the years. It used to be called the Christmas Eve Pageant. Now it's called the Christmas Eve Show. Organizers changed that a few years ago because, well, there are no judges. Then, during the height of the pandemic in 2020, they had to get creative to find a way to spread joy and not COVID-19. Our first COVID Christmas, it was um, drive-by only. Santa and his elves are standing outside on Broadway as families drove up and got their presents through the car window. There was also a compilation of videos the club put together full of holiday songs from local artists. Howard says the committee agreed that the steps the community has taken to reduce the risks of contracting the virus have allowed the club to do the show in person again this year. In addition to magic and songs, there will be a couple of drawings at this year's event. There's a Shop in Skagway program that's been running all month in town, and people have put their names in for a grand prize that will be announced on stage. There will also be a drawing for the winner of the Nancy Shave Memorial Doll Raffle. Howard says that raffle is a fundraiser for a scholarship award that's given to a local student. For many years, the Nancy Shea Memorial Doll Raffle was a $500 scholarship awarded to a graduating senior. Um, now, two years ago, we were actually able to raise enough money through the doll ticket sales uh, that we upped the scholarship to a $1,000 scholarship for a local graduating senior. She says the $2 tickets go on sale between Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve each year. We put all of those... Uh, names into a bowl and we draw those and the winner gets this American Girl doll with three outfits, a keepsake box, and a very beautiful dress that is modeled after a local's wedding dress. And that's all sewn and donated by Jean Worley. And she picks the bride every year, a local, and she picks their dress um, to replicate. Jean Worley is a local tailor who's been making the doll's wedding dresses for over 40 years. In Skagway, the unexpected is usually entertaining. A few years ago, Santa Claus had his pants fall down at the beginning of the show, and now there are several sets of suspenders at the ready. And as one of the show's organizers, Cat Stewart, recalls, another year one of the elves' dogs got loose. Children got their faces licked. And it was adorable, even though it was very naughty. This year, show organizers expect around 75 children to attend. Reporting from Skagway, I'm Mike Swayze. And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. If you missed any of tonight's stories, we're online at alaskapublic.org and wherever you get your podcasts. 
weird reports tonight from Lindsay Brolini in Anchorage, Jacob Resnick and Rasha McChesney in Juneau, Sabine Pooks in Kenai, Robin in Fairbanks, and Mike Swayze in Skagway. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or comment, email us, news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Tobin Shelby. I'm Lori Townsend. From all of us here at Alaska Public Media, happy holidays, happy holidays. May the merry bells keep ringing. Happy holidays to you. Have a great weekend, Alaskans. Good night. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by... Alaska Pipeline Service Company, maintaining and operating the 800-mile Trans-Alaska Pipeline since 1977. Support for public radio comes from the communities we serve. Whether you give as an individual member or through your business, know that your contribution makes possible programming that informs, inspires, and entertains. We thank you for the role you play in your public radio station. This is Statewide News on Alaska Public Media.